evidence and answers. Forest fires in California, tsunamis in Southeast Asia, the rising tides in the Pacific Islands, shrinking ice caps in the North Pole. Are we facing a catastrophic rise in the Earth's climate? What can we do to save our planet? Or is a global catastrophe inevitable? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, we will be listening as Pat interviews Dr. Hugh Ross on the issue of climate change. Now with part one is our host, Pat Zukran. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, the fires in California, the rising tides in the Pacific Islands, shrinking ice caps in the North Pole, are we facing a catastrophic rise in climate? California recently passed a bill mandating that by 2035, they will ban the sale of gas-powered vehicles in order to combat climate change. Are we facing a global catastrophe? Are we doing enough to save the planet? Some are skeptical of the climate change pessimists, and there's some confusion regarding this issue. How can we discern truth from error on this issue of climate change? Well, to help us address this issue is astronomer Dr. Hugh Ross. He is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, an excellent organization that we highly endorse here at Evidence and Answers. It's an organization dedicated to integrating scientific fact and biblical truth and he has a number of books along with the scholars on his team as well addressing these issues of faith and science and some of his recent books include the one we're featuring today weathering climate change another great book why the universe is the way it is and navigating genesis so Hugh welcome back to evidence and answers well thank you for inviting me back yes well Hugh, first talk to us you know is climate change a real problem? There are skeptics out there that are saying, no, it is not. The facts are all skewed. The science is biased here to one particular position. Is, is climate change a real problem? Well, I waited uh, to bring the book out until we had really reliable temperature records for the past 10,000 years. I mean, in the past, people were relying on just one or two temperature proxies but new research is using 74 temperature proxies from all over the world. And what this new data tells us is that the climate that we've been enjoying for the past 9,500 years is far more stable than what we thought. The old data was saying the temperature was stable to plus or minus 2 degrees centigrade. We now know it's stable to plus or minus 0.65 degrees centigrade. And it's that extreme climate stability that's enabled us humans to launch and sustain global civilization. But I begin the book by making the point that climate instability is the norm for our planet. Climate stability is the rare exception, and particularly the extreme climate stability we've had for the past 9,500 years. So most of the book is devoted to trying to explain how it is that we had all this amazing fine-tuning that gives us this period of extreme climate stability. Yes, now I believe you stated in your book that there is a slight rise or, or warming uh, in the past few years. Is that correct? 
That is correct. If you look carefully at the new data, it shows us that the global mean temperature has been very slowly declining from its maximum 8,700 years ago. And it's declined by one degree centigrade. But in the last 70 years, it's warmed by one degree centigrade. So right now, we're exactly where we were 8,700 years ago. But the concern is, if we continue on the pace that we've been on for the past 70 years, the global mean temperature could jump up another couple of degrees centigrade. And if that happens, uh, we're going to melt the polar ice cap. And whenever you melt the polar ice cap, it brings on a very rapid temperature drop for the whole planet, mainly because melting the polar ice cap causes a whole lot more snow to fall on Siberia and Canada. You know, that's the enigma of living in an ice age cycle. Global warming always brings on global cooling. Now, this is uh, in several years ago that uh, I was reading reports when this debate was uh, really being heated, and a lot of skeptics were saying, well, it depends where you're taking the temperature. A lot of temperatures are being taken now in the urban areas, where, of course, we're going to see a rise in temperature. But if you look at satellite temperatures and temperatures you know, in the less populated areas, there doesn't seem to be a rise. That's why you need to look at the global mean temperature. Because, for example, you've got parts of the world that are getting colder. Eastern Europe's getting colder. But Canada, for example, is warming up at five times the rate of the rest of the world on average. So it's that global mean that you need to pay attention to. And also, not just looking at the temperature records of the past 100 years, but taking it back over the past 10,000. If you go back a thousand years, you don't have these big hot spots in the urban centers. Yeah, now how do you get temperature readings from that far back? You have to use proxies. Uh, probably the best data comes from ice cores and sediment cores. And again, if you go back a decade, almost all that data was coming from Antarctica and Greenland. Uh, but now they're drilling ice cores all over the world. And that's a remarkable thing about our planet. Even at the equator, you can find places that have got really thick ice, uh, such as Mount Chimborazo in Ecuador. And then uh, you've got the Tibetan Plateau. There you've got 1,000 square miles of uh, ice that you can drill through. Then you've got things like tree rings. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there literally are 74 uh, different uh, proxies you've got for the past temperature. But, yeah, those that are most reliable are the oxygen 18 to oxygen 17 to oxygen 16 isotope ratios that you get from sediment cores and ice cores. Yes, I know in the field of archaeology where I'm in, you know, yeah, we look at these soil studies here and, yeah, you can go back several thousand years and you can even see where there were droughts and everything by the kind of uh, soil and sediment deposits that are at that particular layer period. Well, at sediment cores, uh, you will get accurate temperature records, but you won't get the annual resolution. The advantage of the ice cores is you get a measurement every single year. Well, Hugh, you know, what contributes to the warming temperature? I guess the big debate is how big a role is man actually playing in this whole global warming? Well, that's what's different now. Uh, again, if you go back uh, even two years ago, there was debate over whether or not 
the warming was real. With the new data, that is settled. Even the skeptics of global warming are now admitting that temperature is going up because of how we got such high quality data. The debate is really shifting as to what is the cause of the warming. And what I explain in the book is that you've got natural cycles that are cooling the planet. At the same time, you've got human activity that's warming the planet. So, for example, the changing tilt of Earth's rotation axis is putting us towards a colder epoch, likewise the changing shape of our orbit around the Earth. And if it wasn't for human activity, we'd be deep in an ice age right now. We basically delayed the onset of the next ice age by the fact that human activity, the launch of civilization, almost perfectly counterbalanced the natural cooling. For 8,700 years, the cooling was very slightly greater than the warming from human activity. But as we're all aware, since the end of World War II, there's been an exponential explosion in technology, uh, and therefore we are now actually having human activity outstripping the natural cooling. But I argue in the book that it's not too late to stabilize the climate. And a lot of people call my book the anti-Al Gore book, because what I'm basically saying is yeah. we're not between a rock and a hard place. The climate change books that are out there, besides mine, are all saying we're facing an imminent catastrophe, and the only way we can stop it is to make draconian economic sacrifices. Stop driving gasoline cars, as you mentioned, shut down our factories, turn off your air conditioning, basically lower your standard of living by a factor of two or three times. However, that strategy ignores two important biblical principles. Number one, the Bible tells us that we human beings are fundamentally selfish. Trying to get people to lower their standard of living, that's not going to work. You can pass laws, but people are going to cheat, and nations are going to cheat. The other thing you see in the Bible is that God uh, gave a mandate to human beings. We're to manage the planet's resources for our benefit and the benefit of all their life, which implies we're not going to have to make a choice between our economic benefit and the well-being of all their life. There will be solutions that are win-win. And that's how I close the book off. I list several dozen things we can do to stabilize the climate that will benefit the world's ecosystems and at the same time put more money in everybody's pockets, enhance the economic well-being of the peoples of the world and especially the poor people of the world. And what politician in his right mind is going to vote against that? Yes, that's one of the things I appreciated about the book. There seemed to be a good balanced approach there that you don't see in, in uh, many of the other books out there. Now, Hugh, I mean, what are some of the things that men are doing to contribute to global warming? You named a few in the books. Well, most books on global warming put all of their focus on the fact that we're pumping carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through the burning of fossil fuels. That's just one factor. I mean, we're also putting methane in the atmosphere, nitrous oxides, chlorofluorocarbons, and I think that one of the big ignored factors is black carbon soot. I mean, it's been puzzling why Canada is warming up so much faster than the rest of the world if all we're dealing with is greenhouse gases. 
uh, but there's research showing that the burning of coal in India and China produces this black carbon soot, and the winds carry it and dump it on Canada. And when you dump a lot of black carbon soot on snow in Canada, it melts the snow and warms everything up. So that's giving us understanding how why Canada is warming up so much faster than the rest of the world. Wow, and, and Hugh, you know, you say in your book that scientists predict a rise in temperature about 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. Uh, what kind of impact will that potentially have upon the planet? Well, I think the impact that we need to pay the most close attention to is as we warm the planet, because we see this in all the previous ice age cycles. Whenever the global mean temperature rises 2 degrees centigrade above where we are right now, the polar ice cap melts. And when you melt the polar ice cap, instead of that ice reflecting sunlight with 60% efficiency, the open ocean liquid water reflects it with only 6% efficiency. And so now you've got the Arctic Ocean absorbing a whole lot more heat from the sun. And that heat produces water vapor, and that water vapor will fall as snow on Siberia and Canada. The only reason why Canada and Siberia are not covered with thousands of feet of ice today is their virtual deserts. They only get about 10 inches of precipitation equivalent per year. And that's not enough for the ice to accumulate. But if we were to double or triple it in a very short period of time, you've got thousands of feet of ice covering all of Canada, covering Siberia, almost all of Europe. And if the last ice age is any sign you got thousands of feet of ice going all the way down into Southern California. And, uh, yeah, a harbor of San Diego uh, was frozen over every winter during the last ice age. Wow. You know, you, you talk about that we've been in an unusual period of climate stability. You know, tell us about that and, and what that reveals about our creator and his involvement with the human race and ultimately, you know, our purpose. Well, what's unusual when you look at the entire history of the Earth, that's what I do in the book. I look at the climate over the entire history of the Earth and make note that we've been in an Ice Age cycle for only the last 2.58 million years. And when you're in an Ice Age cycle, the global mean temperature jumps up and down by 10 to 12 degrees centigrade on timescales of just a few centuries. And that explains why people living during the last ice age couldn't launch civilization. The climate was way too unstable for them to be able to count on uh, the, the harvest of any uh, grains that they planted or any of the animals they kept. And basically people were forced to put all of their energy into coming up with enough food. You know, I explained in the book, however, is that we have to be in an ice age cycle to be able to feed billions of human beings. It's thanks to being in an ice age cycle that during the warm interglacials, you got melting ice left over from the last ice age. And that melting ice feeds the great rivers of the world that water the agricultural plains. Probably the best example of that are the 20 biggest rivers in Asia. They all flow out of the ice fields in the Tibetan Plateau. And if it wasn't for that ice, you wouldn't be able to feed uh, billions of Asians. 
The other big benefit is when you come up out of an ice age, you get this very rapid melting of thousands of feet of ice. And that rapid melt causes the continents of the world to rebound upward. It's like you're taking a weight off of them. And as they rebound upward, it ignites volcanic eruptions all around the world. And volcanoes uh, spew out very rich nutrients. And so as the ice was receding from the last ice age, the great agricultural plains of the world were all fertilized. It's a combination of fertilizer and of water that makes it possible for us uh, to feed 7.5 billion human beings and enables us too, with that huge food productivity to set most of the world's population free from coming up with enough food. I mean, in the United States, for example, only 1% of our population is dedicated to coming up with food. The rest of us, we're set free to do engineering, uh, science, music, art, uh, write computer programs, advanced technology. It explains why we have such a high standard of living and such great technology. However, what's unusual, if you look at the entire Ice Age cycle, the only epoch where you don't see extreme climate instability is the one we're in right now. And again, most of the book is dedicated to explaining all the fine-tuning that's necessary to open up this brief window of extreme climate stability. I want people reading the book to recognize this is just so miraculous, it's got to be a gift from God. If it's a gift from God, what does he want us to do with it? Yeah, explains a little bit of that to us, you know, some of the fine-tuning that's involved to give us this kind of climate stability for the last several thousand years. Well, the key thing is that you have to first ignite the Ice Age cycle. And that's really miraculous because the sun gets brighter and brighter as it gets older and older. So here we got a sun that's brighter than it's ever been before in the history of Earth's life. Yet for 90% of Earth's past history, there's been no ice at all. So the enigma is, how do we explain all this ice uh, when we got the sun brighter than it's ever been. Mm. And the answer is, you had a huge asteroid striking in the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, off the south tip of South America, where the water was 17,000 feet deep. This asteroid, which was about two kilometers in diameter, went all the way down to the ocean floor, blasted up the ocean floor material, plus all of that water, and surrounded the Earth with a giant aerosol cloud that basically reflected away sunlight. But that's what enabled ice to accumulate on Greenland, Antarctica, and the Tibetan Plateau. And that's when the Arctic ice cap began to form. And that's what ignited the Ice Age cycle. But when it got ignited, uh, the cycle was driven by the changing tilt of Earth's rotation axis. I mean... Most people know our rotation axis tilts back and forth between 22 and 24 degrees. When it tilts towards 24, the planet gets warmer and ice melts. When it tilts towards 22, the planet gets colder and ice forms. But it has a period of 41,000 years. With a 41,000-year period, your warm interglacials are only going to last two or 3,000 years which is not enough time to launch and sustain 
global civilization. But what happened 800,000 years ago is another giant asteroid, actually was a comet, that struck the South China Sea, split up into two pieces. One piece uh, landed in Laos. Another piece wiped out the Spratly Islands. Well, that was one of 15 factors that simultaneously worked together to change the period from 41,000 years to 100,000 years. And with 100,000 years, you can have an interglacial that lasts 10,000 years. But probably the most miraculous thing is what happened towards the end of the last ice age. 12,800 years ago, the biggest of these three asteroids hit in northwest Greenland. It was only discovered two years ago, and it was discovered by accident. NASA had an aircraft flying over northwest Greenland, and they happened to have their deep ice-penetrating radar turned on, and they found a 32-kilometer crater 3,000 feet below the ice in northwest Greenland. But what that asteroid strike did is it prevented the global mean temperature from going up to its normal 2 degrees centigrade above where we are now. It basically sent the entire planet into a major cooling event that lasted 1,200 years. So it stopped the temperature from going up to its normal maximum, but it also brought about a very brief period of climate stability. Humans took advantage of that, and as they began to launch civilization, that's when the tilt of the rotation axis began to go back towards 22. So that was a cooling effect, but the launch of human civilization counterbalanced that with a warming effect. And the, to me, the most amazing thing is for 9,500 years, the warming from human activity perfectly counterbalanced the cooling from the natural cycles until the last 70 years. Yeah, I find this fascinating, Hugh. I mean, how do astronomers like you know that these asteroids, you know, hit in the depths of these oceans? How do you guys figure that out? Well, again, there was a research ship that was surveying the bottom off of South America, and they discovered isotopes that told them there had to be a big asteroid there. I mean, you know, these asteroids, especially the stainless steel asteroids that strike, they have a very unusual composition, lots of nickel, lots of iridium, and the isotopes are different than what you get in, the hum uh, in earth rocks. And so they discovered that debris from this asteroid filled an area 500 miles by 300 miles underneath the uh, Pacific Ocean. You know, in the case of what happened in northwest Greenland, they found this crater under 3,000 feet of ice. Then they sent some geophysicists to the edge of the ice field, and they measured the meltwater coming out from underneath the ice, and it had all the isotope signatures of a giant stainless steel asteroid striking 12,800 years ago. Yes. Now, one of the things that you state is that this seems to be active providence, God's dartboard, I think is what you call it. Why is that? Well, the reason I say that is these giant asteroids, uh, statistically, you get one every 50 million years, and here we got three within two and a half million years. And for that reason, there was a lot of skepticism about this asteroid in northwest Greenland. People were saying, can't be. 
things that big don't strike that often. You're telling me you get three all close together and uh, how these three are all about the same size, two of them the same composition. They just said statistically that's impossible, but they couldn't deny the evidence. The evidence is clear-cut. This really did happen. And I call it a divine miracle because you need these three asteroids to hit at just the right time, at just the right location on planet Earth, and they have to be of just the right composition. There's just way too many just rights to attribute this to pure chance. And it's all for the benefit of making possible billions of human beings living on the planet with the technology so that the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ can be taken to all the people groups of the world. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally. That number in Hawaii is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrat. 